It's really lovely to be with you all. Um, my dear friend Kent, whom I think you know well, uh, has shared a lot with me about this community and how thoughtful you are about these gatherings and what you discuss together. So it's really my privilege. I wanted to share a little bit about myself before we begin. I am an artist. Uh, I'm a musician. I also paint. I'm currently working on my first book, and I'm a single mom somehow in the, the middle of all of that, <laughs> which is a lot. But I share all that to say that I have been working on my writing a lot, so I just put together some of my writings, which is how I'm going to share with you. I'll just read some things that I wrote, and then hopefully, if you feel compelled, you can stick around and we can have a discussion together. One of the things that I'm fascinated by is the relationship between seasons and creativity. And it's interesting to me that so many of us, when we think about our lives, we tend to draw out these, these timelines. You know, this, this map of like, first this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And we dissect this sort of like horizontal line with these vertical moments. Or we might picture our lives in a sort of upward ascent, like I'm just going to get to the top of that mountain. And the top of the mountain for many of us can be some point of arrival, whether it's a, a success moment that we're like, when this happens, or when I finally retire, or you know, when I meet the love of my life, and then, you know, then, then somehow it's all just going to be great, right? Then downhill? No. Um, but we tend to think in lines. And I'm really drawn to a different approach. I think as we look at the seasons, we see an invitation to think about our lives and transformation in terms of cycles. And what that provides us with is an alternative to seeing seasons of winter or fall as a problem, as though not being productive or maybe needing a season of being in the womb of hibernation of putting the tools down um, to learn that this is actually part of the natural cyclical way that life and creativity and love actually flow. So this is part of what I wanted to speak to you about today. My kids just started school this week, so of course to me we're already in fall. <laughs> Although it doesn't feel like it this morning in my Canadian tuxedo up here. It's quite warm. But since we are almost in fall, I want to share an autumnal invitation on letting go. So my question to you this morning is, what if heartbreak and letting go aren't the sign of something going wrong in your life, but of something going very right? So I want to begin with this beautiful invocation by one of my favorite poets, as I'm sure she is to most of you, Mary Oliver. Look. The trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long taper of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds, and every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, 
to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So I'd like, I'd like it if you'd picture us all around a campfire on a crisp, cool fall night. We'll just use your imagination. <laughs> Ready for a ghost story. It starts like this. Deep, deep in the woods of what you haven't imagined yet is the frightful maybe of failure. Its jowly, lined face mocks your every move, making you question yourself. With one shadow shift, it can paralyze you on your path keeping you stuck behind fences, hidden under the covers of your familiar routines and autopilot life. Its frightening howl of what if is enough to have you running back to the safety of what was, and so you do the end. <laughs> That's such a lame story, right? <laughs> that everything in our souls recognizes the missed adventure and the paralyzed possibility in such a stunted, half-lived story. But do we recognize how the fear of failure, of heartbreak, of disappointment keeps us out of our own courageous adventures? How much monster power we have given the natural reality that sometimes, most of the time, things don't work out the way that we planned. When I was 19 years old, I was signed to an independent record label. This was my dream. And I was recording with Jay Bennett from the band Wilco, and I was doing a photo shoot in Chicago. And the night before, I just had this feeling, a feeling like the train was leaving the station and I wasn't on it. <laughs> the train was all about me, but I wasn't the one leading it. And I remember that I prayed that night that if this path that I was on wasn't going to make me a better person, a better human, or especially a better artist, I didn't want it. And within two weeks, the label fell apart. Poof. Now, I know my prayer didn't do this, right? <laughs> I, didn't, I, I don't have that kind of power. But then my brother got deathly ill. For a month, we lived in the unknown terror of the liminality with death. And thankfully, he pulled through. But in the ensuing months, I had that feeling now familiar to me of feeling like I'm back to square one with no map, totally without a plan, reeling in the heartbreak of disappointment. And what if I would have just been like, okay, <laughs> well, that's it, no more music. Of course, that's not what happened. Kent Dobson, who I was friends with at the time, said to me around then, don't be a musician, Brie, because you want it to be a career. Become a musician because it makes you a certain kind of person. And to me, that meant one who is attentive and present to the intensity of this life and who is willing to live with courage and generous, generous creativity anyway. In the many years since that day, I've experienced heartbreak again and again. Jay, my producer, took his own life. Opportunities that almost happened didn't. I experienced horrible, unspeakable trauma. My marriage ended. And through it all, I've been coming back to this willingness to be an artist, which is to bear the intensity of heartbreak and to live from it, not as some sort of drama-obsessed identity, that's not what I'm talking about, but from the tenderness 
of one who realizes that there's a relationship between our willingness to let go of what we think we know, our plans, our ideas, even our hopes, and the ability to usher in the possibility of something new, of letting what will be come through the fissures of our own heart that is cracked wide open. This, to me, is the nature of creativity, which you might call love or life. So I've been thinking a lot about failure and disappointment and heartbreak, about what arbitrary contours define its monstrous shape in the shadows, in the dark woods and unknowing night of what if. And we all have stories that create what goes bump in the night, don't we? What if I lose my job? What if my marriage doesn't make it? What if I put myself out there and I'm ridiculed? What if my courage costs me the security of belonging? What if this breaks my heart? What if this breaks my heart? What if this breaks my heart? What is so fascinating is how the what-if worst-case scenarios grow and grow in our imaginations, becoming so powerful as to scare us in place to spook us into hiding into our own beds of comfort and familiarity, certain that if we dare to step out, some boogeyman of what might be will get us. I teach creativity courses, and I use a lot of ancient folk and fairy tales in my summer course, the journey of which point not away from the dark woods and the monsters that hide within it, but directly toward what most frightens the hero. Each frightful trickster, hag, and witch somehow holds the key to unlocking the magic, the bravery, the becoming. So what are we really afraid of? What is this monster of failure or heartbreak that we are running from? In the great firmament dome of my sky, I see my own heartbreaks and failures, and by failure I mean things just not going the way I thought they would as the figures that tear open my artificial curtain categories, as the piercing holes that let in the light. I see failures as the fallopian horns and the vulva smile, the ultimate uterine face that can shed both the losses of unmet maybes, every woman here knows what I speak of, and pleasurably receive the possibility of what could yet be. So failure then, heartbreak, is just a fermentation of our fear, a flux that puts us in touch with the fallacy of each one of our constructs that make us feel like we're in control. And because of this, every failure is a composted beginning, a surrendered release of our expectations of what we thought might or should have been into a joyful bacterial undoing of our own concepts, ideas, identifications, on a great hopeful heap of what we cannot yet imagine, composting. So let me ask you something. What disappointment are you allowing to become a definition? What does the fallacy of failure or heartbreak look like to you? What defines the lines of its monstrous face? What shadowy shapes does it take on in the dark of your unknown? And what if the heartbreak you are avoiding is actually the site of your own emergence. 
Buddhist and psychotherapist Bruce Tift, many of you might know who this gentleman is, says that the basis of all of our neuroses and anxiety is essentially our inability to cope with the intensity of the unknown. Well, crap. <laughs> sort of like, well, okay, that's pretty much always. But it's easier for our minds to organize around the neurotic behavior and create a storyline, a script that we stick to for life, than it is for us to face this discomfort of ultimate uncertainty. He says, anxiety is an accurate perception of the fundamental open-ended nature of life from the perspective of the egoic operating structure. And then if we let the ego run with that agenda, he says, the more we invest in creating a life that is safe from what happens, we end up feeling dead because we have lost touch with the spontaneity and open-endedness that is life itself. So essentially, we're running around trying to escape the f in intensity and the feeling of not knowing, so we numb, distract, or what I'm most interested in speaking about this morning, avoid the vulnerability of not knowing, of whatever it is we don't know will happen if this relationship ends, or this job falls through, or this season comes to a close. But doesn't fall have something to teach us about the importance of letting go? of dying to what has been so that we can make room for what could be. In the end, every separation is a link, as Simone Weil says. The changes and the losses actually reveal the preciousness of what has been shared. We were speaking of this this morning in our conversation about the ache of the, depart the departure of a loved one, how the absence actually forms a strange sort of presence in remembrance. The ache that runs through everything then is an ache of love. Whether the separation is of a teacher and a student, a parent and a child, lover and beloved, or a person and a place. To stop our restless running, our compulsive distractions, and quietly turn within to face that great ache is to accept the vulnerability of life's many deaths to recognize that consciously letting go is an utmost precious act of love. So even when we are grieving loss, we can turn toward that ache, not to try to make it go away, but simply to recognize that the pain we feel is not a problem. It's not the sign of something wrong, but something that is precious. The pain is there because love made a bond. And the seasons and life shows us that love is stronger than death somehow. Something precious endures. Nothing is wasted or lost. Not ever, not really. Every single offering you have given and received in the exchange of love lives on forever in the unseen artery of this cosmos at the heart of the universe. We know this. For every person we love who has passed on from this life proves it. Isn't it strange how that absence becomes a presence? Makes us more tenderly aware of how precious every conversation and memory was that we shared. The ache you feel burning in your chest even now is the love, is the thread that runs through everything in this material plane. 
It is the beams we must bear and recognize that only love can speak flesh and matter into existence as unutterably precious precisely because it is fragile and because it is passing, because it does not last. Everything changes, and it is hard to bear that changeability, the decay, the loss of what has been, the not knowing, I know. But this is the great secret. It is only through letting go that we can let be and allow life force, creativity, as I like to describe it, to make something new in the ashes of what has been. And ecologically, this is our great homecoming to our place in the family of belonging, as Mary Oliver says. It's to remember, and I use this word a lot intentionally, to remember, to become membered to once more, to remember ourselves as fragile, decaying, renewing, complexifying, dying, and living anyway, just as all life is on this planet. When you can accept that the ache that you feel is the love, it changes our reptilian brain's reaction that wants to reject the suffering and grief. We can soften our bodies in an exhale of surrendered acceptance, which is to say we can finally stop resisting it and instead feel it deeply, not run away from it, but allow it to run its course through us, changing us as it does. The ache is the love, and that ache as love runs all the way down through everything. It's always there. So then heartbreak can move from something that we identify with into something that shapes us. Instead of hanging on or trying to pour concrete on the river, we let ourselves flow with it, not without tears or grief, but with the added gift of grace. We say, okay, okay, okay. I can bear this, even if it's just a minute at a time. I can bear the intensity of this feeling, of this change, of what I didn't want to happen. And eventually, I know that I'll be able to say thank you, and yes, eventually. By focusing on where we are changing with every change, we're able to stop the dualism and blaming that often occurs in heartbreaking endings. We're also able to release the other and others to be on their journey of growth and learning if this is not a heartbreak of death. It keeps us from collapsing the intensity of letting go into blame games. What I'm saying is that the closure we can really get is the meaning that we're able to weave in brightly colored darn stitches in the tears and rips that happen in our lives. We weave a new kind of closure in the shape of recognizing how we are learning and growing and moving through despite it all, even now, in our courage of taking one step and then the next and then the next. Trusting, braving, and creating something new and beautiful out of each stitch and knot and weft. This is the work of being an artist, which by the way, I consider each one of you to be for we're each making a masterpiece with the weave of our lives, aren't we? So all of this begins with a simple shift, to be willing to bear letting go, 
to let go not just of people and places, but even let go of the identities that we cling to, to bear the intensity of this life and turn toward our fleshy, fragile vulnerability. I want to ask you where it hurts. Where are you gripping and hanging on? What is the tenderness living inside you that you are distracting yourself from? Where is the spot within you that is sore, aching, or inflamed with the fury of heartbreak? The decision or a deeper dawning knowing that there is an end in sight that you must face. This is the place you must begin making your way to, the place you must actually be willing to gaze upon, and in so doing, bear your own deepest vulnerable intimacy by being willing to go there. Now, everything in dominant culture and society has trained us for the opposite of this. <laughs> we have been trained to avoid going there at all costs, to distract ourselves, stay busy, or self-medicate so we don't have to go there. We've been taught to move on already or just numb out and certainly don't allow yourself the space and time and slowness to go there. There is, after all, a kind of messy endeavor. It means we have to be willing to wade through the murk of might have been, of the waste-filled waters of our disappointed and discarded dreams, of what could have or maybe even should have been to reckon with the reality that we have never really been in control, nor will we ever be. There is, of course, always the choice to just keep ignoring it, pretending that it's not there, distracting yourself every time you feel its presence creeping up on you. Sure, you could keep denying and avoiding it, but if you do that, my friends, you risk a far greater grief for there is no greater heartbreak than the heartbreak of one who at the moment of death feels the regret of not having truly lived. One who chose to cut themselves off from the fullness of life, which is to say, for the sake of not going there, they were never really here. So once again, I want to ask you, where does it hurt? Right now in your life, where and what are you being invited to be present to in letting go and in grief. It can be a huge or sudden unexpected loss or change, but it can also be the subtle surrendering of the seemingly small shifts that, believe me, amount to a total life redirect or a complete reorientation. The poet David White has this to say about heartbreak. Heartbreak is unpreventable the natural outcome of caring for people and things over which we have no control, of holding in our affections those who inevitably move beyond our line of sight. Heartbreak is inescapable, yet we use the word as if it only occurs when things have gone wrong, an unrequited love, a shattered dream, or a child lost before their time. Heartbreak, we hope, is something we can avoid, something to guard against, a chasm to be carefully looked for and then walked around. The hope is to find a way to place our feet where the elemental forces of life will keep us in the manner to which we want to be accustomed and which will also keep us from the losses that all other human beings have experienced without exception since the beginning of conscious time. But heartbreak may just be the very essence of being human, of being on the journey from here to there, 
and of coming to care deeply for what we find along the way. In the end, what we are doing when we turn toward the pain of our grief is we're choosing to accept limitations, which is that there is actually a limit, a limit to what we can do, a limit to what we can know, a limit to our very lives. So when we can accept those limits, what we're doing is courageously accepting the death that is hidden within life. And so if we want to be fully alive and live the most courageous lives possible, we must begin to welcome the shadow, welcome the diminishing, welcome the dying as part of that full life, as somehow, paradoxically, necessary. Learning to accept death, then, really is about learning how to accept vulnerability. When we turn toward our grief, we are turning our backs on the farce of the great project of modernity, which seeks to shut out decay and fortress ourselves against the imperfection, really any, any imperfection, truly, and inconvenience of death. But by turning toward death, we are turning back to the wild. The wild of this planet, yes, but the wild of our own hearts, too. To be wild is to be vulnerable, to accept that there are forces beyond our own that influence and impact our course, that we are permeable to, that penetrate us, and therefore make us fleshy, fecund, feeling, and altogether fragile. This then becomes our practice, to be willing to soften around that pain, to be committed to being vulnerable, willing to feel deeply and shed the layers of grief, of skin, of dreams, of membranes, again and again and again and again. Like the trees in autumn, we must loosen and let out and release. Unconsciously, we are always doing this with every breath, and our body's biology is always in this state of surrendered flux. The trick is to embrace this mindfully, heartfully, and as a conscious act in your circumstances, in your life right now, in your brave turning toward your heartbreak. So where does it hurt? Only when we can fully see and hold what is precious about our vulnerability can we begin to let it go. But listen, this isn't a Disney song. <laughs> Letting go is not a one-time release and done. To let go is to choose to be in the embodied posture of vulnerability again and again and again. To feel deeply the waves of grief and be surprised by the unexpected surge of joy as you remember, remember, what is good and precious and what was shared and hoped for and mingled and tangled, given and received. To grieve and let go is to hold the many threads in your hands that forever connect you to this person, circumstance, experience, or time, and you to them. It is to be a weaver of unseen threads of love in the tapestry of shared interrelating and joint becoming, which is this thing that we are fortunate to be a part of. But first, you must turn to where it hurts to breathe out around the pain, soften into your flesh and feeling, 
Be vulnerable, join the living. Be a maker, not a machine. Being vulnerable is what makes you an artist. Where does it hurt? And then, are you willing to bear the beams of love in the midst of that heartbreak? To allow what hurts about this life to make you vulnerable in being willing to bear the discomfort of not knowing? And let me ask you this. What unknown and unknowing will your heartbreak make room for? What will you be able to compost by letting go in making room for what may yet be? Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cactails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds, and every pond, no matter what its name, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires in the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go.